and let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and kindness to us this day and for watching over us and for your daily blessings in our lives, for the grace we've been given through Christ and we continue to be abundantly blessed because of our position in Christ and the continuing work of the Spirit of God in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. We thank you for the scriptures, the word, and we pray that as we look at, at it tonight and meditate, think about it, that it will cause us to <clears throat> think about our own situation in life, our own relationship to you and, and our own uh, responsibilities of obedience and how we ought to live and act in response to what Christ has done and what you say in scripture. So give us insight into this. We do pray for our dear sister Liz and her situation with the appendicitis. We we're thankful that it didn't rupture, but it seems to be very serious. So we pray you'll continue to heal her. We uh, thankful that she, I'm sure she's in good hands with her daughter and so forth. And uh, pray that uh, this medicine that they're giving her for the infection will be effective and she'll begin a very quick recovery here. Pray for all for, for our brother Hugh and his continuing battle. And we pray you'll strengthen him and encourage him and his wife and family and all this difficulty and for others in our congregation and our church who suffer various difficulties and problems as, as uh, through COVID or through various normal processes of life. And so we're depending upon you and trusting you, Lord, and thankful for all that you do for us and will do for us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Let's see if we can get this up. Oh, yeah. Well, that didn't work out. Yeah. Quiz. Got to have a quiz, you know. <laughs> so let's look at these questions here. Um, number one, Paul stresses his apostleship in the opening verses because the Philippians were questioning his authority over them. So think about that for a second, true or false. This is, uh, of course, false because, you know, we're dealing with not the Philippians, but the Corinthians. Uh, yeah, the Corinthians were <laughs> questioning his authority over them. We don't, we're not looking at Philippians, but there's no evidence that they were doing that, of course. So that's what students call a trick question. <clears throat> Number two, Corinth was located in the province of Macedonia. Macedonia. Remember, there are two provinces that are important in Greece, uh, as we think of it, in the scriptures, the New Testament, Macedonia and Achaia. And of course, Corinth is not in Macedonia, it's in Achaia. Philipp Philippi is in Macedonia, but Corinth is the capital of the province of Achaia. And Paul says he's writing to the Corinthians and also to all the other believers in Achaia. He mentions them too, you remember in chapter one. So that's false. Number three, in verse eight, Paul says his troubles were experienced in the province of Galatia. 
his troubles that he talks about, his afflictions, his difficulties were experienced in the province of Galatia. Well, of course, that's false, too, because we're talking about the province of Achaia, as I said. Galatia was the province uh, <clears throat> he initially evangelized in, on his first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14 and wrote an epistle to the people in that province. Number four, so that's false. Number four, <clears throat> Paul says that our sufferings as Christians help atone for our sin. Well, of course, that's false. Paul isn't saying about that. He talks about this. We, we share in the sufferings of Christ, which is a little difficult, but <clears throat> we know from other scriptures, obviously Christ's work of atonement was completed on the cross. Paul seems to be talking about the fact that we are identified with Christ. Uh, remember, Christ on the Damascus Road uh, spoke to Paul uh, and said to him, why are you persecuting me? <clears throat> and Paul could have said, you know, I'm not, I'm not persecuting you, Lord. I'm persecuting these Christians. Well, if you're persecuting Christians, you're persecuting me. So in a sense, we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Christ, uh, the, the body of Christ is suffering. That's false. Five, Paul believed that God would always deliver him from suffering. Uh, well, as you can probably guess, that's uh, false too, that God would always deliver him from suffering. Paul says, he says in one verse, you remember, <clears throat> he expects God to deliver him, but he is, he knows that's not a guarantee. He was hoping he would and trusting God, but it's not a guarantee. So those are all false. So next week, they'll probably be all true. So if you're going to hedge your bets, try for all true next week. <laughs> all right, let's look at <clears throat> where we're at. We, uh, last week, we looked at the greeting and Thanksgiving. The greeting was fairly normal. The Thanksgiving part, which is a common aspect of all his epistles, except for Galatians, um, is there, but it's unusual here because Paul um, always thanks God for his people he's writing to. And he does that in the first Corinthians chapter one, he thanks God for the Corinthians, but here he's thanks God for God's uh, aid to him. He thanks God for how God has ministered to him for God's comforting him in his suffering. <clears throat> so this is a very personal epistle. It's, it's unlike any of the rest of them. Paul just kind of lays it out there. Uh, his difficulties and troubles and problems. We we see we see his the you know we see uh, how difficult his life is and uh, how he suffers and and uh, he cries out to God just like we do. I mean, sometimes we get this idea that the great apostle was some sort of Iron Man who <clears throat> never had any problems or difficulties, or at least he was able just to kind of stand up straight and endure and nothing bothered him. But we see in this epistle that, no, he was just like us. He, he had his down times. He had his uh, depressions, as we might say, in a sense. Um, you know, and he says, you know, at one point we were distressed and suffered even to the point that, you know, I thought that I was going to die. He says in verse eight, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. So we despaired of life itself. That's a very difficult place to be in. 
So that was verses one through 11. <clears throat> now we get to more of the heart of the issue. And that's from chapter 112 through 716. Uh, and this is really a defense of Paul's ministry against criticism. Now, this, is, this gets a little hard to follow because Paul liked to run, what we might say, a lot of rabbit trails. He starts talking about a subject. He mentions something, and he starts going on about that subject. It's kind of like a Baptist preacher, you know, in the, in the sermon. You know, just uh, uh, one, one really great thing about Pastor Ken is he's manuscripting his, don't tell anybody, I, don't tell him that I told you this. Uh, you know, he's manuscripting his sermon so he doesn't get down, you know, these rabbit trails like most Baptist preachers I know. <laughs> they just start off and they get down here and they go down here and, you know, you wonder if they're ever going to get back to the road again. But that's, a, that, you know, fortunately, we, Pastor Ken is very good at keeping on point. We thank God for that. Uh, but Paul, <laughs> Paul goes off on these tangents. Now, this is under the inspiration of God, so we're, we know God wants this to be, but this is what we get. So we'll get down to a lot of different rabbit trails here in a sense, another points that Paul wants to pick up on and explain to the Corinthians. For, we might consider them diversions, but they're really things that God wants us to know. So uh, Paul is defending his ministry against criticism, and uh, the first point is he's defending his conduct. Now, he's defending his conduct against Corinthian complaints. As I say here, the Corinthians were, you know, great complainers. And they, as you, you know, if you, if you read through these epistles, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they didn't mind voicing their complaints. And they probably took the opportunity of Titus's visit with a severe letter to register a number of complaints against Paul. Now, we'll talk again about this chronology, but remember we said that <clears throat> Paul's in, in, in Ephesus right now. He's written a previous letter, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He's written 1 Corinthians, and uh, he makes a visit over to Corinth, and it doesn't go well a man or some men, some opponents really oppose him, and the Corinthians don't defend Paul, don't stand up for him. He comes back to Ephesus, and he writes a letter that we're going to call, it's commonly called the severe letter, that he refers to in 2 Corinthians, and is taken, by, with, taken to, to, to them by, with Titus. As we talked about before, <clears throat> Paul is waiting to hear from Titus, but he can't wait, and he just can't seem to wait in Ephesus. So he goes on to Troas, goes north, and then over to Macedonia, and finally meets up with Titus. And Titus brings the report, a pretty good report. And uh, and he writes Second Corinthians from there. So that's what we'll be talking about. So what were these complaints <clears throat> that they that they brought back? Uh, that, that they told Paul about, and Titus may have uh, mentioned some of these when he reported to Paul. Uh, one of them is apparently they're saying something like, Paul writes obscure letters. This is verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1. Let's look at that, verse 12. Uh, now, this is our boast, 
our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world. Now, notice that we, we talked about that first person plural, we. Now, he may be referring to himself and the other people with him, but mainly it's Paul. He's using this literary plural that's pretty common in letters of that age. So he's really thinking primarily about himself that I have conducted, but that would include his associates, obviously. We have uh, conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on, but on God's grace. Um, for we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, there has been some miscommunication, Paul admits that. But as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, that is, defend us, just as we will boast or defend you in the day of the Lord Jesus. That is, when Christ returns, when you're at the judgment seat, Paul would defend the Corinthians as true converts, Christians, you know, that he led to the Lord, that he gave the gospel to. So I say here, beginning in verse 15, <clears throat> And continuing through chapter 2, verse 4, Paul will defend himself against the specific charges of vacillation and domineering leveled against him by his opponents. But before he gets to the main charges, Paul deals with two more general accusations. One, I say here, that he acted shamelessly and insincerely in his relations with the Corinthians. That's the first part of verse 12. Because um, he says, you know, we testify, we have conducted ourselves in our relationship, integrity and godly sincerity. So he's being accused of not doing that, acting shamelessly and insincerely. And two, that in his letters, he had shown worldly shrewdness and had been evasive by writing one thing, but meaning or intending another. Uh, and he speaks about that, you know, we, we've not written you and talked to you using worldly wisdom. We're, we're writing things you can understand and so forth. We're not trying to deceive you, trick you, nothing like that. So I say here, Paul seeks to answer these baseless charges uh, the only way possible for him, by appealing to the overall integrity of his conduct. So Paul claims here that in both the church and in the world, his conduct has been characterized by purity of intention and openness and had been governed by the grace of God. That's what he says in verse 12. Then he asserts that in none of his correspondence did his meaning become apparent by only reading between the lines. You know, he wasn't trying to hide anything. Rather, his meaning, which would lay on the surface, could be understood simply by reading it, he says in the first part of verse 13. 
And then Paul concludes in verse 14 by reminding these his converts at Corinth that he had that they had already begun to understand to appreciate his motives of intentions as you have understood us in part especially through the recent visit of Titus and here I'm just reviewing you remember what's gone on here Paul has gone to Troas, as I said, uh, after Titus has gone with a severe letter. Um, and we read uh, 2 Corinthians 2, so it will say, I didn't have any peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia. And when he goes on to Macedonia, he'll tell us later on, what happened when Titus joined him. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. So the letter that Paul sent, the severe letter through Titus, had a positive effect generally. They accepted it, as we'll see. They accepted the rebuke, pretty much mostly as Paul had said. We'll see there's still some dangling issues, but, uh, but you know, they were sorry. Their deep sorrow, your concern for me, and so forth. And so, uh, so that's what he's saying here. You have understood me in part, you know, and I hope that you will fully come to understand his motives and intentions. There won't be any question about what Paul is doing. So he expresses hope here that they would reach, you know, full assurance, complete confidence. And uh, that would give them uh, as much cause for pride now as they would have, they would give him in the day of the Lord Jesus, the coming of Christ. So the first complaint is Paul is writing these obscure letters. He's heard that complaint before. Uh, now it appears that they, they, don't, uh, they don't say they don't believe that anymore. They, they think Paul is not trying to hide anything you know, now, but he's been accused of that. Um, apparently when he went to Corinth with that painful visit and... Uh, he got these objections hurled at him. Well, there's a, another complaint <clears throat> that Paul has heard about, and that is that Paul changes his travel plans. Uh, he's, he, he really can't be relied upon. He says he's coming here, doing this, and you know you just can't rely upon the guy. He says, uh, verse 15, because I was confident of this, and I say below that, when Paul says he's, he, he was, he's confident of this, he's referring to his own integrity that God had led him in his decision-making, back in verse 12. He's confident that God led him in his decision-making, what he was doing. I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. So what I wanted to do was 
I was, I'm coming, I'm, I'm in Ephesus now and I'm planning to come to Macedonia. But what I was planning to do was come to visit you first, to visit you on my way and then to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send, send you on my way to Judea. So you'd have two visits. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? I mean, was I just making this up as I went along? Was I insincere? Or do I make plans in a worldly manner so that the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no, not a dependable person, just somebody throws it out there. I say here, when Paul says he is confident, he's referring again to his integrity. One of, this, one of the charges against Paul by the Corinthians was that he was fickle about his travel plans. He said he would come and visit them, and then he apparently changed his mind without consulting them. But as Paul will explain, his travel plans were not governed by his personal desires, but by the mission God had given to him. When I read about this complaint, it just amazes me that you know, here's the Apostle Paul, not like he can pick up the phone or email them and say, hey, this, this change or this change. You know, he, Paul is not in complete control of what happens in his life. Uh, you know, God is in control and he expresses a desire to do something and to come to them and, and, and you know, he, he intends to do it. But uh, circumstances intervene. If we compare these verses, what he says here, that is, I want to come to you in Achaia, in Corinth, then go to Macedonia, then come back to Corinth, and then have you send me on your on your way on my way to Judea. If we compare that with 1 Corinthians 16, 2 through 8, we found the outlines of two different itineraries related to Paul at Corinth. So we can see in a sense why there has been some, some a complaint about this because Paul is laid out at different times in his correspondence and his relations with the Corinthians, his correspondence here, from Ephesus, different itineraries. Things have just changed over time. In 1 Corinthians, the first plan was as follows. And you can see it there, Ephesus, Macedonia, Corinth, Jerusalem. So here's what 1 Corinthians said. Now, remember, 1 Corinthians is written from Ephesus. Paul is, has um, evangelized Corinth, established a church on his second missionary journey. He's now in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, spends three years there. And he's writing 1 Corinthians. And he says, you know, on the first day of the week, you set us out a sum of money and so forth. So that when I come, so he's coming from Ephesus to Corinth, there'll be no collections will have to be made. <laughs> then when I arrive, you know, I'm coming, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul's policy, Paul was doing here, Paul was collecting an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem and Judea. Apparently, they suffered a lot of hardship there in Judea and Jerusalem. And on his missionary journeys, Paul is referring to this offering that he is gathering. Ultimately, he does get this offering, and he takes it back to Jerusalem 
and delivers it to the elders of the church there in Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. Acts 20. So he says, uh, you know, Paul's, Paul, and to ensure the integrity of it, uh, Paul uh, asked representatives of the various churches. Pansy, here's this. Oh, he got okay. I was giving Pansy a drink there. She's coughing. She got the COVID. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> Pansy, we, we were in the grocery store the other day, and Pansy's behind me, and there's a lady behind her, and Pansy kind of <clears throat> coughs twice, and the lady leaves, you know. <laughs> As you can imagine, that people are afraid somebody's coughing with the COVID. So um, Paul's policy was not to just collect the money himself, but to uh, collect it, but have a representative of the church go with him to ensure the integrity of all this. So it says, I'm going to come, and you're going to approve some men who will go with me back to Jerusalem. I'll come. If it seems advisable for me to go, they will accompany me also. So at this point, Paul is saying, uh, I'll just, you just get this money and take it back to Jerusalem, but, uh, you know, I'll accompany them if that seems advisable. Now, that's exactly what did happen. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. And then he says, finally in verse 8, but I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost. So the first uh, travel plan, the first itinerary he gives is not what we just read in 2 Corinthians. It's I'm going to come over to Macedonia, then I'm going to to uh, I'm going to come to Ephesus, then I'm going to Macedonia, uh, then I'm going to come to Corinth and Jerusalem. So it's for, this first itinerary in First Corinthians 16, he's going to Macedonia, then he's coming to you in Corinth, and then he's going to Judea. That's the first itinerary. But as I say here in their notes, but in 2 Corinthians, we just read, a different itinerary is given. That's what I, we just read. He's, he says, I'm going to make, I'm going to have a double visit, a double visit. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.15, because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. So uh, this is the itinerary that um, Paul is suggesting now, which is a change from 1 Corinthians, undoubtedly. A double visit, Ephesus to Corinth, the Macedonia, Corinth, Judea. So uh, he says, I'm going to come to Corinth and then I'm going to go to Macedonia, and then I'm going to come back uh, to Corinth, and then go on to Judea. Now, in the first itinerary, remember he said, uh, I may go to Judea. Now he says, it's certain, definitely, I'll go to Judea. Now, so what do we, what do we make of this? Well, probably the first plan of 1 Corinthians was Paul's original intention. But the plan was nullified by Paul's crossing from Ephesus to Corinth on the painful visit. So Paul is saying, this was my itinerary, itinerary here, 
the first the first itinerary. I was going to Macedonia, and then I was going to come to Corinth and go to Judea. But Paul uh, changed his plan on that, decided that he needed to go to Ephesus directly because of the problems and difficulties. Now, this is not the plan that's actually followed, but this is the plan that developed. So he, he first was going to Macedonia and then down to Corinth, but he decides to make this visit over here that we call the painful visit. He didn't know it was going to be a painful visit. <laughs> and he says, so I told you that I was coming to Corinth and I'm going to go to Macedonia. I'm going to come back and then we'll go to Judea. So, uh, so this plan described was made after the writing of 1 Corinthians and introduces two modifications here, as we said. He wants to visit Corinth twice before and after his activity in Macedonia. And his intention of traveling Judea is now settled and determined. But this second plan, this plan is nullified because Paul goes over to Corinth, but he doesn't go to Macedonia. He comes right back to Ephesus. So neither one of these plans was actually carried out. His actual itinerary, as I say here, here's what actually happened. We know from the book of Acts and what he says in 2 Corinthians. Paul goes over to Corinth as he planned to do. And he, and he said, my plan was to go to Macedonia and come back and give you a double visit. But that visit turned out to be a painful visit. Paul faced opposition, rebuke. The Corinthians didn't defend him. They seemed to sort of side with this objector and so forth. And so uh, Paul returns. Ephesus. Now he's there and uh, he um, sends Titus when he's in Ephesus, he sends Titus with that severe letter. And so he's waiting to hear from Titus and there's this riot that breaks out in Ephesus, Acts 19, if you're familiar with the text there. We don't know if that's exactly why Paul left. Paul says he, Paul says at one point, you know, he says in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, and, and in 7, we read, he, he, he was just, he, he, he wanted to hear from Titus. So he goes on to Troas and he looks for Titus. Titus is not there. So he goes on to Macedonia. And from Macedonia, he writes 2 Corinthians, the book we're reading right now. So that's as far as we know from 2 Corinthians. He's in Macedonia writing this. Now we know what happened next from the book of Acts, Acts 20, verse 3. He goes on to Rome. I mean, he goes on to Corinth, I'm sorry. And uh, <clears throat> he seems to have a pretty good visit there because the Corinthians participate in this collection. The one he mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, we learn... Uh, from the book of Romans that he writes from Corinth that the Corinthians have participated in that collection. 
So Paul comes to Corinth. He writes the book of Romans because his intention is to go to Jerusalem and then head off to Rome. Now, he doesn't, go, he doesn't go to Rome, but not like he thought. Remember, he leaves Corinth. He goes to Judea. He, he presents the offering from the Gentile churches to the church of Jerusalem. But then he goes to the Temple Mount. There's that riot. He gets arrested, taken to Caesarea for two years under, in prison in the governor's palace, and then shipped off to Rome. You know, so that's what ultimately happens. So there's all these different travel plans. It could be said that the painful visit reverted back to the first plan. Uh, I mean, he didn't go, he comes over for the painful visit, but he doesn't go up to Macedonia. You know, uh, so uh, it seemed that Paul was saying yes, no, yes, you know, to the second plan, yes, no. You know, so you could, you could easily... If you wanted to misconstrue what Paul is saying, you could do it. You could say he just makes his plans with worldly wisdom. He can't be trusted. He can't be relied upon. So I said here, the apostle had apparently provided his opponents an occasion to charge him with being fickle. Paul was apparently accused by certain Corinthians with fickleness. Paul is probably quoting the accusation of certain Corinthians, which is, indicated by the use of the definite article with the word that's translated fickleness here, when he says, uh, was I fickle when I intended to do this? Um, he actually, the, the Greek says, uh, the fickleness, that is the fickleness of which I am accused, I think is what he's saying. Was this fickleness with which I accuse, you know, that's what he seems to be, you know, talking about here. He's, He's working, he's answering this particular charge. Fickle has the idea, as I say, of levity, of vacillation or irresponsibilities. So Paul's detractors here are apparently suggesting that uh, his arbitrary change in his travel plans uh, was motivated purely by self-interest with no concern for broken promises or the needs of the current. Paul just, he's just concerned about himself and so forth. They're saying, you know, he makes his plans on pure impulse, like a worldly man, according to the mood of the moment. So he could say, yes, yes, one day, no day, or yes, one day, no, the next moment. You know, you couldn't rely upon him. He's vacillates, he's irresponsible, he's fickle. So, you know, I think there's a lesson here as I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking about, there's a lesson here, I think, for all of us, you know, about jumping to hasty conclusions, especially when we're judging what others are doing or judging the motives of what others are doing. You know, that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were judging Paul's motives here unfairly. And we can do that too, or there's, there's a tendency for us to assume without clear evidence that we know what motivates the actions of others. Oh, we know why they're doing that. Now, sometimes we do, a person's character is pretty well revealed and, you know, we, we have to look at that, but we, we can sometimes too hastily condemn others for what appears to be sinful actions or reactions to something we or others have said or done. 
the, the nature of our depravity is to assume, you know, the worst about others, to judge others, ourselves as completely innocent. So we need to give our brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt until we have clear evidence, you know, to the contrary. Verse 18, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. We don't just change our minds on a whim. Paul is so distressed by the charge he is fickle and made his plans in a worldly manner, verse 17, uh, and so convinced of his innocence that he solemnly invokes the unquestionable trustworthiness of God. God is faithful, sort of as guaranteeing and testifying to the consistency of his message to the Corinthians. So Paul is saying neither in proclaiming the good news to them or in telling them about his travel plans was his language, you know, uh, unclear. Uh, it wasn't an, an ambiguous blend of yes and no. It was, he was telling them straight, you know, as best he knew at the time. Verse 19, for the son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken to us, excuse me, is spoken by us, to the glory of God. So I say here, Paul now builds upon the point of verse 18. Our message to you is not yes and no. He's building upon that. The message which was originally um, proclaimed at Corinth by the original missionaries, remember uh, on this second missionary journey, uh, beginning in, in Acts 15, Paul and Silas set out. They pick up uh, uh, Timothy at Lystra in Acts 16, and he travels with them. And then Luke apparently joins them somewhere around in Asia, somewhere, Troas or somewhere, because we get the we sections of Acts. So there's four of them. He mentions particularly here Silas and Timothy. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So this message that was originally proclaimed by these missionaries centered in none other than God's Son, in whom, you know, obviously inconsistency and indecision has no place in God and in God the Son. I mean, the Corinthians know that God is faithful. Paul says, but surely as God is faithful. They don't certainly question that. God is faithful primarily through the Son of God. All the promises of God about salvation find their fulfillment and their affirmation in Him, in Christ. That is why, Paul says, and so here, um, that is why in their corporate worship, 
offered to God through Christ. Think about that. That's us too. In our corporate worship, we offer our worship to God through Christ. We come through Christ. So Paul says, and so, you know, here, um, and so through him, through the, through the work of Christ, the benefits of Christ, um, in our corporate worship, Christians joyfully utter the yes or amen of agreement and consecration. Uh, so you remember, amen is, uh, this is just the Greek letters, A-M-E-N, amen. Amen. We pronounce it amen in Greek, but it's just really the Greek of the Hebrew. This is the Hebrew letters. So we're talking about a Hebrew word here. This is the Hebrew word in Greek letters. A-M-E-N is the way to spell the Greek spelling of the Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word means trustworthy or reliable. Uh, It's the idea of trustworthiness. God is trustworthy. He's reliable true. It it means surely. And so when we say amen, you know, Pastor Ken will often say after his prayer, and all God's people said amen. We all agree. We are sure that that's true. That's trustworthy and so forth. And that's what, you know, we, people say, that's when we say, when we say amen, something is true. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. And so, so Paul says, there's no untrustworthiness in God or in Christ. The promises of God are true and trustworthy. Uh, and I'm preaching that gospel, that truth. And when we say that response, when we say amen, that enhances God's glory, Paul says. It's spoken by us to the glory of God. And so the fact that the Corinthians have said amen, see, (laughs) they have said amen to the gospel message was in effect a validation of Paul's preaching. They agreed with Paul's preaching in the past. They said amen to that. 1 Corinthians 1, 5 through 6, for in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. See, if you doubt the Apostle Paul, if you're a Corinthian, and you think the Apostle Paul, there's something problem with his message or what he's saying, you know, what are you saying about your own salvation? He's the guy that brought you the gospel. Everything you know about the gospel is through the apostle Paul. Uh, So Paul says, uh, God confirmed the message because he gave you these spiritual gifts. He gave you evidence of these, of, of the truth of the gospel by giving you these gifts. Second Corinthians three, he'll say, you yourselves are our letter, your evidence, your, your lives, your testimony, are our letter written on our, on our hearts known and read by everyone. You know that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. So Christians are evidence 
of the grace of God, of the gospel, of the truth of God. So Paul seems to be arguing here that his consistency was confirmed by the message and their reception of it. Um, that that since his you know that since his consistency and was confirmed by by his mess by his message and their reception of that message, how is it likely that he would act in a worldly manner in a relatively trivial trivial affair? In other words, if Paul could be relied upon for the important stuff, the gospel, the truth of God, why would why would he act? Why would he act? you know, like a, like a, um, a false guy, a false teacher in these trivial matters of, of itinerary, you know, if he wants to pull the wool over their eyes, it's going to be on something important like the gospel, false teaching, false preaching. Uh, he's not going to do this in these small things. In other words, Paul is arguing that his consistency in the greater matters, which they acknowledge by saying amen. His words about Christ, they say amen to that. And sure, you know, his consistency, they should trust him in these less, lesser matters. That is, his words about his travel plans. He's not, he's not trying to fool them. He's not being untrustworthy. Paul's consist, the consistency of Paul's message should ensure the consistency of his motives and actions. Verse 21, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He appointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I say, uh, Paul now concludes his defense of the charge of levity. Verse 17, was I fickle when I intended to do this? In verses 21 and 20, 22 here, Paul reinforces his argument by pointing to the fact that it's God who produces stability in himself, in Paul, and the Corinthians. Both have been brought, both he and the Corinthians, have been brought into intimate relationship with Christ. This was accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit. The God who gave both Paul and the Corinthians the Spirit in order to guarantee their common destiny, guaranteeing what is to come, that's our common destiny, full salvation in the future. So the God who gave the Spirit to us in order to guarantee a deposit, a down payment, to guarantee our common destiny is the same God who ensures the integrity of Paul's conduct. So Paul says, first of all, uh, he anointed us. This is a reference here to the work of the Holy Spirit. The the work of the Spirit is often looked upon as sort of an anointing. The Spirit of God is on me. This is Jesus speaking. He has anointed me. Acts 10, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. And 1 John 2, 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and you know the truth. So one of the things John says here 
is that because we have the spirit of God, we can know the truth. Remember 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural man, the man without the spirit, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. But we have the Holy Spirit. That's what I mean by this anointing. This is not, we're not talking about a post-conversion thing. We're talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the spirit who anoints us and enables us to understand the truth of God. We accept it as true. We can read the Bible and understand the Bible. Um, I mean, I, I can think of, I was just reading a story today about a lady who was executed on death row. She committed terrible crimes, but <laughs> she went to a, uh, this is a recent time, she went to a, in prison to hear some people speak some gospel and she stole a Bible. She didn't realize she could, they would give her a Bible. She stole it, read it. She got saved. Uh, I'm, I've known a number of people who got saved just from reading the Bible, you know, just read it and the spirit of God worked on their hearts. So he anointed us. This refers to the Holy spirit that we have been given. Um, Given the emphasis on the Spirit in the present context, this is, a, this is a reference to the Spirit of God in salvation, as I said. And our ability to stand firm here, uh, he says, God enables us to stand firm in Christ. We, can, we don't just give up our testimony just like that. We just don't deny Christ like that. We can stand firm because the Spirit works in us to this very hour. Uh, he also says, God set his seal of ownership on us in that he put his Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So he talks about a seal. He set his seal on us. And he put his spirit as a deposit, seal and deposit. God, I say, set his seal of ownership on us in that he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That is, we say we're saved, you remember, but I think Pastor Ken had that message, uh, this blog where he was talking about, you know, past, present, and future. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. There is a future aspect to our salvation. There's something that, that is guaranteed to us to come. So associated with these ideas of sealing, he first talks about he anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us. The uh, uh, dealing uh, associated with this idea of sealing is the ideas of ownership. A seal indicates ownership. We're thinking here about a seal that someone might have put on a document. You know, people in previous times... <laughs> would put a seal, a wax seal, some sort of wax seal on a letter and maybe stamp it with an insignia of who they were. They did the same thing with scrolls. They would, they would wrap up a scroll and put a wax seal on it and then put their identification mark on it. So a seal indicates ownership, authentication, security. And so the spirit seals us. We are He's our seal, I should say, and we're branded sort of as God's property. 
the reality of our faith is attested. This is a guarantee, guaranteed for the day of redemption. Uh, Ephesians 4.30, we'll see in just a moment. Um, so verses 21 and 22 make it clear that God the Father does the sealing and the Holy Spirit is the seal. I just wanted to emphasize that. And you can, you can tell it here because it says, uh, God anointed us. He, that is God, anointed us and set his seal of ownership upon us. So uh, sometimes we, it depends on how you understand the phrase, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the sealing of the Holy Spirit, we're not saying that the Holy Spirit, he seals us in the sense he is the actor, the active one. God is the one who seals us, and the seal is the Holy Spirit. We're talking about metaphors here. These are figures of speech. The Holy Spirit is viewed as a seal, indicating ownership, authority, security, He's also, we have the metaphor or the, or, the, or the figure of speech of a deposit. He's like a down payment, both of these. And so um, I'm thinking here right now about the seal. And I'm just trying to emphasize that it's God who seals us and the Holy Spirit is the seal. Ephesians 1.13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal. You were marked with a seal. And what is that seal? The promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed. So the Spirit is viewed, the indwelling of the Spirit. So these are just metaphors or figures of speech to describe aspects of indwelling. The, the indwelling of the Spirit can be thought of like a seal. He can be thought of like a deposit. And I say here, the Spirit, Paul says, can be viewed as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This Greek word, arbone, is a legal term pertaining to contracts of sale or service. It referred to the earnest money that a buyer would give the seller prior to the actual sale or delivery of the item. We might call that a down payment or deposit. You know, where they still use this term earnest money and buying a house. You put down a down payment, an earnest, guaranteeing that you will buy this house. Thus the Spirit is a first installment or deposit of the blessing of salvation, guaranteeing what is to come. So basically, the seal and the deposit that are used here are simply a metaphors, that is, figures of speech, used by Paul here to emphasize two aspects of the spirits and dwelling. Now, let me just harp on a little minor point here that uh, I've harped on for years, but... Um, as I say, some people get mixed up about this and think the Holy Spirit, he somehow seals us. He's the actor. God is the actor. He seals us. And the image is the Spirit himself is the seal. That's the, that's the correct way to understand this. 
people have misunderstood this and, and you know the king james version uh is a little hard to understand grieve not the holy spirit of god whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption what does that mean whereby ye are sealed well you know i i know we we took it to mean and it does mean it means something like by which you are see or sealed by which you are sealed so the king james translators misunderstood this at this point i think and and took it to mean that the holy spirit does the sealing but just remember we read those two verses <laughs> that indicate very clearly that it's god who does the sealing um, not the spirit himself unfortunately the new american standard uh still perpetuates this era by whom you were sealed it should be with whom and the greek is very clear on this i don't i'm not understand why this is mixed up because the greek word here that's translated by means with so the holy spirit it's just a little pet peeve of mine is the seal but it's a great truth that God has given us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is like a down payment guaranteeing that we'll have our future and final salvation. Nothing can stand in the way. We're, etern we're guaranteed that. It's an absolute guarantee. And he's like a seal that guarantees our security. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. All right, let's stop here. For tonight at uh, this point and we will come back to this next week let me stop the share here and okay we should be good any questions i did you could i was going to say you could unmute yourself during when i was talking